I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Austin Letcher. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chordscast. This podcast is created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us. My name is Ben Forrid, and I'm here today with Austin Letcher. Um, we are kicking off this Chordscast episode with a little update on what we've been up to. Um, October was a super busy month for us. We did a, a decent amount of traveling around the country. Uh, we were in Irvine, California for the Global Genes Annual Summit at the beginning of the month. Um, we had a fantastic time. It was a, a great time spent with uh, patient advocates from all across the world, really. Um, we got to meet some new faces as well as see some old friends, right, Austin? That's right. Yeah, Orange County was a blast. Uh, I found it pretty funny that everyone was saying, you know, it was their first rain in, you know, however many like months. April, and it was, yeah. Yeah, and it was only like a, a sprinkling for what we've experienced <laughs> here. But uh, felt right at home running into a lot of familiar faces. Uh, you know, there was a lot of times that I was, I'd look at someone and say, hey, we know each other, right? You know, yeah. whether it be from social media. I know you media, from your Twitter profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or whatnot. And then uh, meeting just a ton of new people, too. So shout out to everyone that you know, we interacted with and you know, said that we'd follow up with. We are working on getting back to you. Um, but if you're eager to reach out to us, please do. Uh, cords at SanfordHealth.org. Or if you took one of our brochures, you can always call us on that 1-800 number, 1-877-658-9192. And uh, we're looking forward to get, getting hold with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, reach out to us in any way you can. Uh, we can always be found at Sanford Chords on Twitter. Um, we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. So um, hit us up. Um, let us know what we can do to help you and uh, help the community. Um, after Global Genes, uh, I think it was the week after that, um, I also went to the, the Nord Summit in Washington, D.C., which was also a great time. Um, saw a lot of the same folks there, but it was um, a different type of atmosphere, um, learned a lot about policy and um, kind of the, the administrative environment around um, new drug launches. And it, it was super interesting. Um, you know, once again, kind of found myself in a room full of people a lot smarter than me. And so <laughs> we just, just learned a lot, kind of went into sponge mode. Um, but yeah, if, if you were there and you didn't have a chance to connect with me, please, uh, please reach out. Um, I'm happy to... Uh, talk to anybody about what we're doing here. In this episode, we are going to cover uh, one of our partners, the International Wagger Syndrome Association. Um, we interviewed John, one of the board members. He's going to talk to us about what Wagger Syndrome is and some of the activities that they've got going on with that group. And then we'll round the episode out with an interview with one of our own Sanford research scientists, Dr. Kevin Francis. And he's going to tell us about some of the, the new cool space edge technologies and approaches that his lab is using to tackle rare disease. 
Uh, and he'll also talk a little bit about some of his own experience working on Wegger Syndrome projects. And so um, it'll be a cool episode. Again, thank you for joining us and enjoy. Austin Letcher, and we are talking to John Morris from the International Wegger Syndrome Association. Uh, he is a board member and a member of their medical advisory committee as well. Um, and in a, on top of all of that, John is the parent of a, uh, a Wegger Syndrome patient. And so thanks so much, John, for taking the time to hang out with us today um, and tell us a little bit more about, uh, about what uh, Wegger Syndrome is. We really appreciate your time. And I appreciate your guys' efforts and times as well. Uh, so, Wagger syndrome uh, is a condition that, that covers a, a large span of conditions, honestly. It's uh, caused by a genetic deletion on the 11th chromosome. Uh, and Wagger stands for, uh, the W is for Wilms tumor, uh, which all of these um, individuals are at an elevated risk of developing, uh, usually at a younger age, as well as aniridia, uh, which is defined as an absence of the iris within the eye. Okay. Uh, and in my daughter's case, it leaves them legally blind uh, and it just has very uh, poor uh, maintenance uh, qualities to the eye, too. So it's usually lifelong degeneration with that condition. Uh, the G in Wagger stands for genitourinary conditions, uh, and that can be very um, expansive as far as how it's um, manifested. And then R is for a uh, range of developmental delays. Okay. And... So it's kind of a wide spectrum there. It covers a, a few different uh, physical outcomes. It definitely does. And beyond that, we're, uh, we're learning about so many other associated conditions that our, uh, our loved ones uh, can have over their lifetime as well. And are those uh, conditions all the same for everyone? Or does everyone have kind of a little bit different of a condition? So, sorry. When you think of the uh, genetic deletion, uh, it can be different. Uh, amongst individuals. Some have a smaller deletion on that chromosome and, and some span much wider and, and some may span more to the left or more to the right. Um, and and do that, you can definitely have a, a range of um, conditions within uh, the spectrum of conditions. So you may have someone who doesn't get Wilms tumor. You may have someone who, most of them have aniridia, uh, but some of them don't develop cataracts and don't need glasses. Uh, we know, I know of one case personally where the individual doesn't actually have aniridia. Um, you know, as far as developmental delays, um, I am unaware of anyone who, who doesn't have some sort of delay, especially because of the, the visual issues. But we have some kids in their 20s who are in college right now, mm. which is amazing. Yeah. So they're, they're thriving. Uh, and then we have some who are, um, you know, working very, very hard, but are, are unfortunately, you know, facing many, many more challenges as they uh, as they age. Uh, so there's definitely a, a, not a uh, complete consistency. It's, it's more of a, a spectrum, certainly, as far as the 
conditions and also the degree or severity within those conditions. Sure. So can you tell me just a little bit of, of background, your personal story? You know, how did you get into the, the rare disease community? What was your diagnosis journey like? And you know, when did you and your wife make the decision um, to act and to become advocates for Wagger syndrome? Yeah, that's, um, wow, that's a big question. Uh, we've certainly been a, down a kind of a long, strange trip. Uh, my, my oldest daughter, Miranda, uh, who's now five years old, um, you know, my wife was pregnant. It was a very normal pregnancy. I think she was born a day early. Uh, and as far as the, you know, initial days, there was nothing unusual, uh, except that she didn't open her eyes. Uh, but the, the pediatricians were not alarmed. They said there, occasionally some kids didn't open their eyes right away. Uh, and, you know, after days kind of turned into months, uh, her eyes didn't open very much. And when they did, we noticed they were kind of dancing around. Uh, they weren't focusing. So we started to get pretty alarmed at that point and, and seeked out our pediatrician, which then led to going to uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where we were diagnosed, uh, an ophthalmologist diagnosed her with having aniridia, which at that point, you know, I'm in healthcare, but I had no idea what aniridia was. Um, so you know, as they described that she had no iris and she had very poor vision and was blind and that's why her eyes were kind of dancing around. Uh, so we spent about four or five days at Children's Hospital getting tested for many, many other things from a seizure disorder, uh, other wide-ranging things. And, and genetic testing confirmed that our daughter's aniridia was not isolated. It was part of that larger spectrum, which is Baggerson. Sure. Um, so, you know, kind of a life changer, you know, you, you always kind of plan out your life and how it might go. Um, but, you know, best laid plans kind of go awry. Um, and we came home, we, we took care of our daughter. We didn't know anything about this Wagger syndrome. Um, but as far as answering your other question, when we became an advocate, you know, during the hospital stay was very stressful. Uh, but you get home and all of a sudden after five days in the hospital, you get huge medical bills. Uh, you're not really given a, a, there's no Wagger specialist. So they suggested us seeing about six or seven different physicians at that point. Um, and it was really challenging to figure out how to navigate through that, that process, that medical landscape. So mm. I think becoming an advocate came, became forced upon us uh, as far as fighting for medical coverage for my daughter as far as learning as much about this condition as humanly possible mm -hmm. so that I could then teach all the physicians who had to be her medical specialists about it. Uh, so you kind of go right down that route. And, and that's where we learned about the IWSA, which is the International Wagger Syndrome Association. Yeah, that's a great segue, John. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the International Wagger Syndrome Association and what your group does for patients and families with uh, Wagger syndrome? So yeah, we, we found out about the International Wagger Syndrome Association. Uh, we've been working with them uh, since that time. Uh, and our association was developed in the early 2000s uh, by family members. It's completely family developed and operated uh, with a small group of parents as well as some really amazing, uh, generous individuals who are connected through our families. Uh, and really the goal of this association is to promote awareness of Wagger syndrome and its associated conditions uh, 
to stimulate research as well as support our families, where we currently have, I believe, 225 families across 29 uh, countries. Wow. Yeah, uh, really spread out. You know, again, this is not a, um, a condition I was familiar with. And unfortunately, most of the physicians or specialists I meet have not heard of it. You know, I'm in a large metropolitan area in Philadelphia, have Children's Hospital, and uh, there are a few physicians who have seen maybe one case, but, but none are, are too familiar with it. So we had the opportunity to finally meet some of the families in the IWSA at one of our annual get-togethers uh, we call Wagger Weekend. And it's, it's, such an, uh, it's such an amazing emotional connection you make right away. You don't realize you need it until you get it. Right. Not having someone near you or anywhere near you, hours, drives away, where you meet and talk to about your kid and hey, what's going on. This happened. Um, this happened to you, too. You, you don't get any of that. And unfortunately, you know, Facebook is amazing, but it's just not the same. Yeah. So when we met them, you know, immediately we realized how passionate they were. But we also realize that it's a small group, and I think they really look hard for people who have any type of skill sets that can help. So my wife with a communications background has immediately dived in, has worked a lot with uh, putting together some literature around flyers for education, uh, is helping the upcoming conference that we have. Uh, and then I have a bit of a medical background. I've, I've managed uh, healthcare facilities as well, so I have some management experience. And I've tried to jump in on the medical side as much as I possibly can as well. Well, that's really noble of you guys to do. And I, I think you really hit on some sort of a, a common thread across um, all rare diseases. Um, you know, we work with an awful lot of, of patient organizations. And the one thing that's that sticks out to me uh, is that getting a rare diagnosis is is quite the lonely experience. You, you, you don't meet anybody else who immediately shares um, what you're going through and Sometimes you even Google it and there's not a whole lot on the internet um, that's known about it. And um, Being able to find a community and being able to find others who can relate to what you're going through is, um, is really a, a critical factor in, um, in you know, moving forward with a life after diagnosis with a rare condition. You're, you're absolutely right on, Ben. I, I actually, the more I've learned, I, I feel really bad because there's so, so many conditions out there where people don't even get a diagnosis. Yeah. And I can't imagine how, um, how much harder that must be as well. Yeah, um, the, the undiagnosed population is something that we've really tried to help um, work with, uh, with our cords registry, just to make sure that people have a place to put in their symptoms or put in any test results that they've got, um, that we can you know, still get those folks an opportunity to participate in research. Um, so you know, along those same lines, Working with families and working with uh, the IWSA, uh, when you do, you have an opportunity to meet parents who have just received the diagnosis or are new to the journey. And if so, you know what sorts of advice do you give them? Um, what types of things do you do you tell them um, as they begin their own journey with Wagger syndrome? Well, I honestly think the, the most important piece, um, and this would you know be good for anyone who's listening who, who hasn't connected with us either, uh, is, is get connected right away. 
um, when you find out that diagnosis, and you kind of touched on this, it, you almost go on into a, a bit of a mourning for like almost, I, I say like you're mourning over your future plans that you thought out before. Sure. Um, and, and it can make you freeze a little bit. You, you don't think clearly. Um, you kind of huddle up and get into that protective situation. And you know what? Our kitties need immediate services. Uh, it's essential. Um, you know, I talked about them being at an elevated risk for whelms. So getting monitored for whelms tumors right away is, is, is so key. Uh, getting early intervention services uh, to assist with the uh, multiple possible delays in regards to motor, speech, and visual development. Um, it, I think it's really important. Um, and and I, even the people that we have talked to immediately on Facebook um, or we've met at that first weekend, it's, you know, we have a lot of information for them. We have a one-page handout for their physicians that we want them to take to their physicians because oh, they need yeah. to. They don't see it. Uh, we have information on the registry, uh, and that's a, that's a big key piece. You know, Kelly Trout, who's like our champion of our patient registry, <laughs> will sit at our annual weekend for hours on hours to help anyone um, fill out this patient registry. Uh, because we are so spread thin, and yeah. any information we can get um, for for anyone who would like to study and, and hopefully understand this condition and the associated conditions with the hope of some type of um, of treatment uh, in the future is just essential. It's so critical. That's a good point, John. I think uh, you bring something up about research. You know, I think a lot of families are are hesitant to. Uh, participate in research one because there's a lot of sensitive information about their children or their themselves um, you know that you were mentioning and a lot of that information is collected in the registry but uh, what would you tell patients and families um, is most important about advocating for research in Wager and, and, and why is it important well <laughs> it's a big question um, we are a small population and Right now, I guess I consider that we have to be the drivers for research. There's, you know, there are some wonderful, amazing souls out there who are studying us right now, um, but not as many as we'd like. And if we don't have too many dedicated researchers who are looking at Wagger syndrome, uh, we're not going to be able to to understand it as much. Uh, and, but if we can fill in this disinformation, we can get enough, you know, a large enough end of, of different patients throughout the world, uh, we'll be able to hopefully understand the various conditions our loved ones have or get diagnosed with. Again, with better understanding, I think the hope is to drive progress towards better treatment and yet get involved in future clinical studies. Great point. Yeah, that's one of the things I think the, um, the registry hopes to accomplish, and that's, um, you know, we've, we've worked with the, Wagers, the International Wagger Syndrome Association. Um, for a number of years to develop the, the, their, their cords questionnaire um, for folks to fill out uh, to help researchers guide their ships. Yeah, I, I think what you see is um, that in, in a rare disease space, it's hard to, like you mentioned, with the low statistical N, <laughs> low, a, a small population, it's hard to get an understanding of how a disease progresses or what to look out for especially with something that's so diverse in symptomology as Wagger. Um, you know, a registry is really 
a key component to collecting all of that data and, and keeping it all in one place so that the researchers know what to look for. Um, and so that uh, the researchers and physicians know how it progresses as time goes on. Absolutely. I mean, so many times in our Facebook groups, you'll get families who are, my child is doing this. Is this a wagger thing or is this normal development or should it something else I should be alarmed about? Or, you know, my child isn't sleeping now. Uh, what does anyone try? What is anyone trying? And, and instead of having a hundred different families try a hundred different things across the world, get this information on the registry. Okay, now all of a sudden we've understood, okay, 75 out of 100 people are having sleep difficulties. That's a commonality. That's a condition that's consistent through our population. And you never know what a researcher might want to study. Again, I said there's many associated conditions. There are the major ones as far as Wilms, aniridia, and such. But there might be other conditions that um, a physician or a researcher may already be studying in another population. Right. That's true. There's a lot of crossover um, in research. The best thing you can do is have information. Once you have the information, you can analyze it. Right. And we don't have the luxury. You know, some of those um, uh, rare diseases that have a, a larger uh, population, you know, they can get by with 5 to 10% of their, um, their population inputting into the registry. We need more. We need, I think right now we have 109 registered. And again, I know that my folks at the IWSA, we're, we're working all the time to make sure people not only um, enroll, but also update it annually. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that Austin and I talk about with people all the time. Um, when you think of a rare disease or you think of a, an expert in anything, um, especially when there's you know, research involved, you think of the scientist in a laboratory wearing a white coat um, as the expert rare conditions that's just not necessarily the case you you find that the experts are the families um, because they're the ones living this living the story and um, the facebook conversations you alluded to and the 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 common you know shared uh, life experiences are owned by the community and um you know that's who you have to tap for um for answers when you're when you, you have questions you're, you're absolutely correct yeah it's um it's amazing, you know, even when I, I wasn't on Facebook for that long. I actually ended up going back on it uh, when I went down this road for the IWSA. Again, just because it's the easiest way to get connected to everyone. Uh, and sometimes I'm marveled at the conversations because I'm, again, my daughter's only five. So I'm getting a lot of knowledge just from these other parents talking about their children as they've grown up and developed. Absolutely. Yeah, John, you mentioned uh, that you have about 109 people enrolled in the registry. I think I heard uh, a few years ago that the estimates on prevalence is about 500 worldwide. Is that number still correct, or has that changed uh, at all? Yeah, it's somewhere between four and 500. With having you know, patients spread across the globe, you know, the IWSA being in 29 different countries, you've got obstacles like language barriers or cultural barriers, um, time zones, you know, not to mention financial constraints that families have to go through um, that forbid them from traveling to the other side of the world. So how does the IWSA um, reach out and connect with those people and more importantly, bring them all under the same umbrella and kind of get them onto the same page? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a huge challenge. 
certainly before my time, we've had some um, really dedicated individuals. One example is uh, Madoka out of uh, Japan who runs the JWSA. Uh, I know she was an integral part as far as helping to translate uh, some of the materials, especially the registry as well, uh, for any Japanese families. Uh, and we are lucky enough, we do have a growing um, population as well throughout Europe, uh, kind of our global alliance. Uh, and this, just this past year, I believe, uh, just recently in August, we had our second uh, European family get-together. Uh, wow. So that's certainly, um, you know, obviously technology is, is, is helpful where we can use um, devices like Skype or Google Hangout to discuss things. Um, but we're actually starting to expand and have some of these face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, and, you know, we are an international association. So in recognition of that, we are really trying to get uh, our global friends involved as well. But it's certainly a challenge. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the new things we've been doing is a lot of our information handouts. Uh, we're currently, now that we've currently completed them uh, in, in sort of our rebranding uh, process, it, we're now translating them uh, to multiple languages as well, as far as the physician handout, so that these families, when they receive the diagnosis, will have this one-pager sheet for their physician, but also for their families that's interpreted into their uh, primary language. Sure. We're trying to take the necessary steps. It's definitely going to be an ongoing challenge. And John, you have a conference coming up too, don't you? We do. We in the middle of October, uh, we have a, our PCORI conference, which is a patient-centered outcomes research institute. Uh, so Wilms tumor, uh, which is a very common tumor uh, in the pediatric population, but it, again, our kids are at a very elevated risk for developing uh, Wilms tumor. Uh, we're having a conference dedicated to studying Wilms tumors, but just in the Wagger uh, patient population. And it's going to be a very unique uh, conference. I'm not the one running it, but I'm so fortunate to be able to be involved and go. And it's going to be families and researchers and medical specialists uh, basically sitting down and discussing uh, the challenges, the problems, but also what other uh, future research opportunities are there. And I think, you know, the, the goals behind it is, is really to develop some some really strong research ideas. I'm really excited to see what the next steps come from this conference. Cool. Do you uh, know any of those researchers or physicians off the top of your head that might be available for families and patients to, to speak with? I don't know a lot of them off the top of my head. That is certainly, um, you know, Kelly Trout is just an amazing person. I know uh, Dr. Ehrlich, uh, who is a, a pediatric, uh, I believe, Leave oncologist out there. I could be wrong. Um, and then Dr. Jeffrey Dome, who, um, again, I have not met him. My, I'm fortunate enough that Miranda, my daughter, has not been diagnosed with Wilms tumor. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand, he is the, um, you know, sort of the, the go-to uh, surgeon that, as far as the um, kidney-sparing uh Surgery in the past, when you were uh, were diagnosed with Wilms tumor, I believe the standard uh, practice was to remove the kid the kidney. Um, whereas now, um, every effort is um, is taken to uh, to spare the kidney. 
And John, the International Wagger Syndrome Association uh, supports more than just Wilms tumor aniridia and all the Wagger associated disorders. I think they uh, support some other 11P uh, related disorders. Is that right? Uh, yes, they um, they also collect data on other associated disorders uh, similar with similar genetic relations, such as Beckwith-Wiedemann, as well as a, a few others as well. Cool. So we'll have to put a call with the action out there for any other 11P-related yeah. disorders or uh, foundations maybe to come reach out to you. Absolutely. So, John, um, as you look forward uh, into the future um, as a uh, as a board member with the IWSA, but, of course, also as a parent um, of, a, of a child with Wagger syndrome, um, what things in research uh, or in advocacy or in healthcare, uh, you know, what what things do you see out in the future that uh, give you hope? Uh, well, I, I think I think lately, at least from what I'm looking at, right, I still think we're on the precipice of, of learning a lot more about genetic research, uh, and certainly, you know, my daughter has a genetic deletion. Uh, so I think learning more about, you know, CRISPR technology is, is certainly a really exciting thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot needs to be developed and, and understood with that. But, you know, it's, it's definitely really exciting. Uh, as far as aniridia, uh, you know, they're, they're doing more and more research on, you know, looking at iris, uh, you know, implants. They're, they're studying how to... Uh, prevent the deterioration uh, that is so common in the aneritic eye. I think that definitely makes me excited. Yeah. Uh, just because in the past, that's one of the things I'm most concerned with. You know, every time my, my daughter amazes me when she drops a Cheerio on the floor and picks it up, which I still don't know how she does it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I also, as a parent, you know, it's like every time you, you celebrate a success, it, it comes with a mixed bag where you have that inner, I don't know, doom as far as worrying about the future as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm optimistic. I, I, I think I'd like to see more people studying Wagger syndrome itself. Um, but as far as the, the conditions that are part of Wagger, uh, there are some really amazing souls out there who are, who are examining those conditions. So I'm hoping that some improved treatment for each of those, you know, snippets or conditions within Wagger um, may bring some really wonderful benefits for my daughter to allow her to thrive in the future. Yeah, and and you know, groups like the IWSA, you know, through the acts of uh, dedicated and and passionate families like yours, uh, you know will, you know, cause those changes, you know, the, the activities that the IWSA undertakes, um, to fund research and to raise awareness for research, um, are really what's going to cast that light on, on Wagger syndrome and, um, lead to future developments. Yeah, I, I really hope so. I, I think, I think again, getting more of this natural history information about our, our families, um, and, and just seeing what else is out there to research. You know, I think not a day goes by where I don't think about you know, something else that could be examined or, or studied or researched about my daughter that, that doesn't just fit those, those four common things. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, other like-minded individuals, I already mentioned Kelly Trout, some of our other medical folks, um, and our executive director, everyone is just working so hard 
for our families that, you know, I, I expect good things. Very good. Well, I'm sure that they're on their way for you, John. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us today, answer our questions, and, and um, talk to our audience about Wagger Syndrome. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate this. Everybody, thanks for joining me here. Uh, this is Ben Ford, and I'm with Kevin Francis, uh, a scientist here at Sanford Research, um, who has a laboratory focusing on a family of rare disease. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me today and for uh, for being with us to answer some questions. So glad to help you out, Ben. <laughs> so let's start off with uh, the basic question. You know, what, what's what's your background? So I um, uh, grew up in West Virginia. Um, was always kind of interested in science as a kid. Um, had hopes of going to medical school when I was in when I was in high school. Like most everyone in high school wants to go into science; they want to be a doctor. <laughs> yes. Um, but then, as I got into college and started to uh, work in some different laboratories, I became really interested in research. And at, after my um, finishing my undergrad studies um, at Marshall University, go herd. I <laughs> ended up uh, going to do a PhD in uh, neuropathology at the Medical University of South Carolina. Got really interested in neuroscience and um, wanted to kind of focus my research in that direction. Cool. So um, from there, you know, you did a postdoc at the NIH, is that right? Is that... Is that kind of your right. first your first kind of introduction to the rare disease community um, for, from a research standpoint, or were you involved in some way before that? No, that's that's a good point. I um, during my PhD, I did a PhD in a lab that was focused on um, cerebral cerebral ischemia or uh, stroke. And while I was there, I got really interested in how the nervous system develops and how there are tons and tons of of common but also rare diseases where genetic mutations lead to dysfunction of the nervous system, whether it's developmental or functional deficits. And after my PhD, I wanted to go to a postdoc um, where I could kind of focus on neurodevelopment and specifically towards the rare disease aspect because I felt like that was a an aspect of neuroscience that was really lacking overall. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are in that camp and coming out of that postdoc, you know, you come to, to Sanford research studying a, a family of rare diseases, um, cholesterol synthesis disorders. How do, how do you describe that to a layperson when you're talking to them? So most people think about cholesterol and human disease. They think about, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, stroke, right. where people have too much cholesterol. In these rare diseases that I, that, that my lab uh, works on, these are affecting kids who have um, mutations within genes that regulate how 
the cells in your body synthesize cholesterol. So they actually have too little cholesterol. Um, and so it's kind of an op- a different way of thinking about cholesterol. Yeah. Um, not so much as having too much of it and that causing, causing disease, but your body does need a certain amount of cholesterol to maintain a homeostasis so tissues and organs function properly. These kids can't do that, and so therefore they have a, a lot of issues uh, clinically that we're trying to understand how they develop and try and identify some targets and pathways and proteins that maybe we could target as a therapy. Sure. Are, are they multi-system disorders? You know, is this something where you're, you're affecting the entire body or are they kind of neuro-specific? Uh, that's, that's a good question. So um, the, main, the main disease we work on, smith the opitz syndrome, is the most common of this class of diseases. And it is a multi-system um, disease. We, we focus on the nervous system side of it because that's where we think we can, we can make the most af- have the most impact as far as a treatment goes mm-hmm. um, clinically with these kids. Um, but of the seven disease, seven, uh, seven diseases we know of within this cholesterol biosynthetic pathway, um, three of them have a strong nervous system component, but the other four do not. Um, they affect um, the skin, they affect the skeletal system, cardiovascular system. Sure. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of variability across the diseases, and we don't really understand why that is, since they all they all converge on um, a requirement for cholesterol, and these kids not having enough of it. And so we're trying to use our models in the lab to identify what's causing these differences. Yeah, and that that's a great segue because I was going to ask you too that. A lot of times you have a basic scientist that's that's focused on a pathway or is focused on uh, maybe the conditions around which two proteins tend to talk to each other in a cell. And sometimes um, a scientist will stumble across a disease uh, in which that pathway is disrupted or maybe there's a, uh, conditions under which normal cellular communication is uh, is interrupted and, and that results in a given disorder. Uh, when you're working in the lab or you're, you're looking at a family of diseases like this, how do you choose um, what conditions you're going to model? Uh, is it based on resources that are available or, do, or does it um, play to some of your strengths as a researcher? You know, how, how, do you, how do you pick and choose what you're going to focus on? Sure. So I, I, I got into the cholesterol synthesis disorder um, family of diseases during my postdoc because I was really interested in neurodevelopment and rare diseases with a, a strong neurodevelopmental aspect. And that's kind of how I got into these diseases, just sure. from a purely um, purely scientific interest. Um, but all of these rare diseases, there's a, there's a clear uh, clinical unmet need um, that these patients have. Mm-hmm. Um, this, these aren't this isn't Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease where there are millions of, of patients that are affected and millions of dollars getting dumped into um, researching these diseases. So there's a, there's a clear unmet need that um, we as scientists um, can try to, try to help um, these individuals the best that we can. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's kind of how I've, I've tried to 
now that I have my own lab here at Stanford, try to branch out into some other rare diseases um, where I have a scientific interest, um, but also where there's a need um, for new research, um, new therapies, new understanding. Sure. So is your is your work in Wagger syndrome kind of one of those outbranching areas? You know, we we spoke to John from the International Wagger Syndrome Association recently, um, and we asked him about some of the research and some of the things that are going on in Wagger syndrome. And, and I know that you have uh, have worked on a project with in collaboration with a, another investigator um, who's maybe more of a Wagger syndrome expert. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, about that you know project and how that started yeah absolutely so um this was a my interest in wagger syndrome started when i was a, a postdoc at nih um there was a there was an investigator there uh, named joan Hahn, who's one of the preeminent um experts uh in the clinical aspects of wagger syndrome um internationally um and she was a she was had her own small research lab there and we had talked about um, using some of the models um, that I use, um, I was using as a postdoc to study Wagger syndrome, and Wagger syndrome has a really strong neurodevelopmental um, component to it, and so scientifically it was really interesting to me. There was a clear um, need um, to better understand how this disease manifests and to identify therapies, and mm-hmm. so this was a conversation we started, and then as I transitioned to my faculty position here at Stanford. We continue, Joan and I continue these conversations, and now this is a, kind of a, a project that I'm, I'm trying to push in my lab um, to use some of the stem cell models that my lab works on to better understand um, the signaling pathways and the developmental deficits that lead to the Weiger syndrome clinical phenotype. Sure. You mentioned the, the stem cells that you use. I, I think this is this is a cool topic to, to discuss, especially with someone who's using them so effectively um, in the lab. We talk about induced pluripotent stem cells a lot in the research setting, and these types of words get thrown out a lot, I imagine, in the in the rare community, too, because it's, a, it's an effective way to model a disease. Can you kind of take me through the, the process in, in layman's terms as best you can, going from patient cells that you can isolate easily in a clinic and going to these these iPSCs, these induced pluripotent stem cells in a lab, and and what you can do with them. Sure. Um, so, induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPS cells, or iPSCs, um, are a artificial stem cell that we that we generate in the laboratory as a as a way to model human disease or um, use it as a tool to screen drugs or um, look for um, pathways that might be affected um, within a disease. So we can take, typically we'll take um, a skin uh, skin biopsy from a patient or we can also use um, peripheral blood. Um, we can take, isolate the cells out from those isolations and then artificially reprogram them into stem cells in the lab. Now these cells in the lab we can grow indefinitely for years at a time if we want to Um, and we can use these cells to drive and push them towards cell types of interest that we want to study Um, so for Wagger syndrome um, being a a disease where we have a strong neurodevelopmental phenotype um, we're trying to take these iPS cells uh, from Wagger syndrome patients 
and push them towards neurons and astrocytes and oligodendrocytes and neural stem cells um, that you would find within um, you would find within a patient, and then we can use those cells to study the human disease outside of the individual. Um, so the, these cells will contain the same genetic material that the donating individual has. So we can also compare across patients who maybe mm. have the same disease, but different mutations, different clinical severities. Um, maybe one patient has um, a stronger, uh, more effect on um, cognitive ability versus motor dysfunction. So we can compare and contrast these um, in the laboratory. It's fascinating. You know, so you're starting with something like a skin cell and you're, you're ending up with a cell that kind of looks and behaves a lot more like a brain cell. Uh, it, it, that's, that always just like trips me up. I'm like, we're in, in some sort of next generation of science fiction here. <laughs> These are really cool tools that are being used every day in uh, scientific research uh, to, to model rare diseases. And I, I just, I think that's the coolest thing. And from the from the perspective of rare diseases, I, I think these iPS cells are even more beneficial um, because there are smaller these are smaller patient populations. We can't mm. we can't mm-hmm. we can't have huge cohorts of hundreds of patients to study um, these diseases clinically. Um, so you know we may have um, you may have a handful of patients. They all have different mutations within the same gene or spanning different genes. So um, the iPS cells really give us a, a nice model that we can use in the lab to really focus down on um, some of the underlying aspects of these rare diseases that we can't really do um, otherwise. Right. I mean, animal models and things can fall short in a lot of different ways. Absolutely. So. Awesome. Well, Kevin, I want to switch gears a little bit here and just talk about um, interacting with members of the rare disease community, advocates, people who aren't, you know, who are affected by a rare condition, but don't have a strong scientific background. Do, do you have any advice or um, uh, any guidance you could provide for them? How do you talk to a scientist? How do you engage a researcher? Um, do researchers want to be contacted? Uh, you know, those those sorts of things are, are big questions that we get a lot in courts. Sure. Uh, um, so I would I would say as, for instance, if you're a, a family who has just received a diagnosis and you're Googling people who are working on these diseases, feel free if you identify someone um, who's researching Wagner syndrome, for example, or Smith on the Opitz, um, feel free to send that person an email or give them a call and um, at least try and have a conversation and start a dialogue um, mm-hmm. with scientists because we as a lot of times we as scientists don't interact or are, are not able to interact with uh, patient groups as frequently as we as we would like because um, as non-clinicians um, we don't see these patients right. on a right. daily basis um, so um, yeah feel, absolutely feel free to talk and try and have a conversation with with scientists who are working on these diseases so you can get an idea of kind of where the field is at that time. Um, patient advocacy groups are outstanding um, resources um, for particularly for people who are who are 
newly diagnosed, um, interacting with other individuals and other families who are going through the same issues you may be going through or have already gone through what you're, the journey you're just now starting on. So yeah. these patient advocacy groups are fantastic resources and they can also be ways to put you in contact with clinical trials and researchers and other groups. Maybe there are other patient groups who have similar clinical phenotypes um, that two groups can work together to try and come to a common goal. Yeah, absolutely. We see that a lot, um, groups trying to to work together to attack the research question (laughs) from more of a unified front. I think that that's um, that's a great strategy. So we've talked a little bit about um, your research. We've talked about iPS cells. When you look towards the future um, in biomedical research, are there things that are going on now, you know, kind of along that same vein or gene therapies or um, antisense oligonucleotides, you know, those sorts of technologies? Are there things that kind of give you hope for advanced discoveries in rare disease research that will make it easier down the road? Sure. Um, yeah, there's one nice thing that is I've noticed in the past 10 years of um, working in the rare disease field is that there's much more of an emphasis now on funding for rare disease research. Mm-hmm. And this funding is going to pay off in therapies, whether it's, um, like you mentioned, um, an oligonucleotide or recombinant proteins or a gene therapy this extra funding is going to lead to treatments for some of these rare diseases. Um, Scientifically, one discovery that I'm really interested in and that I'm hopeful within the next, you know, 10 or so years will lead to some promising clinical trials um, is uh, gene editing with CRISPR, for example, where where we can take, um, we can use this technology to modify and, um, correct a genetic mutation that is present within an individual um, with a rare disease. Correct that mutation um, and correct the genetic defect and provide some clinical benefit. Um, This is still, I think, a ways off for most um, rare diseases, but these studies are ongoing in basic research labs and talks of some clinical trials that will be happening in the not too distant future for some different rare diseases with CRISPR, for example. Yeah, that's awesome. I think there's a a bright future out there for gene delivery and gene editing in a lot of these cases where in the past it's, it's been really off limits. So, well, Kevin, thanks so much for, for sitting down and talking to me today. I really appreciate your time and uh, giving us some insight into your work in the rare disease community. Happy to be with you, Ben. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry, Chords, visit us at sanfordresearch.org chords. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Quartzcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Cords Cast.